Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm very pleased to be talking about uh, a few films from the Tribeca Festival. I guess it's not the Tribeca Film Festival. It's been renamed. I'm glad, as always, to be talking about this with Amy Talbot. Hello, Amy. Hi, Nick. We were watching movies uh, in the Tribeca Film Festival, um, and we can also just talk about what that means uh, in the Tribeca Film Festival, since that's sort of was different, I think, for both of us this year than in, in past years. I mean, in the most obvious ways. Yeah. I mean, it was like really two different festivals. They gave everyone permission to just stay home and watch everything streaming. I mean, they made it sound really attractive. Tribeca, all of it in the comfort of your own home. Of course, the, the contradiction there was that the festival has been moving more and more toward VR and immersive work and special events and organizing itself really around conversations, you know, networking among people who employ film for political ends. It's become a kind of film last festival. And so if you just watched it at home, you watched a lot of pretty mediocre movies and you missed what Tribeca is really trying to turn itself into, which is lots of networking and live events so that the films are really employed to start a discourse about race or about women or about LGBTQ or uh, technology uh, or whatever. And the festival itself pays much more attention to those discourses than to let's try to find some really, really good movies. That was my impression. And since I watched it all at home, I don't know if that's an accurate impression or not. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is interesting that that effectively means that they're kind of two festivals going on. I mean, I guess there's always in a lot of festivals that we, we talk about, there are two festivals going on, which is the more public facing festival, which you know will include movies uh, that aren't necessarily gonna be the critical focus because they've already shown somewhere else maybe, but also include events and are centering on events. I guess this is the continuing eventizing. I hate that word, but it seems suitably awful a word for, <laughs> <laughs> for me, the event that kind of symbolizes a lot of this like these things where it's like the 20th anniversary of some movie or the 30th anniversary movie that they've you've already seen celebrated like 5 10 15 years ago i i think they did heat this year or maybe i think that was they did yeah which you know i love heat i also think maybe there are other movies that i would love to see that kind of like weight thrown behind (laughs) there's just there comes a point where it seems self self defeating a little bit. You you get the immediate reward of something that's like celebrity driven and people can get excited about. And I'm happy people you know can rally around something, uh, <laughs> um, you know that is actually also you know a pretty good movie. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I guess the argument goes that a lot of people have a lot of things competing for their attention. That's what you'll you end up hearing a lot. Right. But that ends up being like seems to set the bar kind of low if you're always kind of assuming that people are not going to be curious unless it's an event. Well, because I was paying attention to Tribeca in the comfort of my own home, I didn't even realize that one of these special events they were showing 
Todd Haynes's Velvet Goldmine mm. with Todd and Christine and one of the actors talking afterwards. And they showed it in their biggest theater, which is the theater that's in the college on Chambers Street. Oh, right. Uh-huh. So the CUNY one, is it? Or? And it is part of a CUNY system, yeah. And uh, they always have their biggest film events there. And I think it has like 1,200 seats, and they were totally sold out for Velvet Goldmine, and people told me it was just a great screening. And it was mm. part of their LGBTQ lineup. But because I was doing this at home, I did not know this. I don't know if I would have gone. Well, I was pressed, but they were selling tickets for 45 bucks. Mm-hmm. Did you really want to pay 45 bucks to see a movie that you had probably already seen in many different forms. I don't know. It just seemed like, but people who went said the audience was great. Todd and Christine were absolutely great. And it was a fantastic experience. So I don't want to knock it. Yeah, no, I know. And it's a, it's a good thing, people coming out for something like that. And then part of me also wonders, is this like a glimpse of what people talk about when they say, oh, movies are going to be like museums or, or like opera or something, you know, where it has to be an event for it to actually screen, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be more something like, like that. I don't know. It'll be things like that. And then things that are just flooded in, in the multiplexes. Right. And then the weird thing, I think you observed before we got started that we haven't yet gotten the, usually they send like a list of just stats uh, and mm-hmm. numbers of, of how the festival attendance went and other things like that. But we haven't gotten that yeah, I mean, I guess it could still be coming down the way. Like, it's awfully late for it to come. And, um, you know, they have different publicity team. I mean, they farmed out their publicity, and there didn't seem to be anyone running this show, really. Like, they used to have that wonderful woman who's now at Sundance, who ran their publicity and was, well, she ran the press part of it. And you just got all kinds of information coming into your email box every single day. Um, Mm -hmm. But that, it was like that part of it didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, it's, it's, I guess it's going to feel a little disembodied when one is at home, but it did feel sort of especially uh, disembodied. And each of us did go to at least one actual physical screening. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you also mentioned that the title has changed. I guess we've kind of, it's, it's just the Tribeca Festival. I mean, they took film out of the title. That's a big yeah. deal. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to put all their eggs in, in, in the basket of, of film anymore. Mm-hmm. But I mean, having said all that, we're going to be able to talk about a number of movies that were, that were pretty interesting. Um, yeah. You mentioned a couple of music documentaries that seemed kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, again... They had live music performances with them during the festival, but I just saw them streaming at home, and I was really sorry to have missed the live music. And that's always been a big thing in Tribeca, music docs or films with, about music that then have musicians there playing live. Yeah. So one is Ben Chase's Music Pictures New Orleans, and Ben Chase is a filmmaker who I've loved for a, a long time. and. Well, he's made a number of really good films. He used to have a partner who actually shot part of this film, uh, Sam Fleischner. But this one is Ben on his own. And he shot it in New Orleans, uh, obviously a few months before the pandemic. And the subject is these old 
all of them now in their, at least in their 70s and beyond, great New Orleans musicians that some of them are pretty local in terms of their fame. Soul Queen Irma Thomas, who is in her 70s, and she came up and performed live, not with her own band. She has one of the great drummers in the world. The Trim Brass Band and its leader, Benny Jones, this guy who founded, you know, that brass band that you see at all these New Orleans funerals and celebrations. Mm -hmm. This incredibly flamboyant dresser and really raunchy blues guitarist and singer, Little Freddie King. And the last section was the Marsalis family patriarch, Ellis Marsalis, and he gave his last performance, part of which was recorded in this film, but mostly it's his rehearsals for it with, Uh, Jason Marsalis and one of his granddaughters and Ellis died in the first months of the pandemic of COVID and just I mean he he blows away all the younger Marsalis Uh, he's just one of the great improvising jazz pianists I've ever heard and so that was just lovely and Ben really knows how to put movies together and get people to talk And it feels very informal, but it's actually quite tightly cut. Yeah, I love this film. I hope I get to to see it. I mean, it sounds like a really important documentary. I mean, not to compare it. I guess an easy comparison would be something like, you know, Buena Vista Social Club, where you're just kind of putting on record a number of just living legends. Yes, it is similar in that way. And also that he he found fantastic footage of some of these people when they were young. Hmm playing largely in clubs. Oh, great. And so that was pretty terrific. And for a film that's coming in around 90 minutes, he had a really good sense of the city as well. So it was just really pleasurable. A much messier documentary is called God Gave Him Drum Machines. And that's about oh God, it's so complicated what this film is about. You didn't see it, did you? No, I didn't. In my, in my head, it's just filed under, like, Birth of Techno somehow. Yeah, yeah. actually, that's what it, the Birth of Techno in Detroit, which is the subtitle. And it's these guys, most of them now pretty up in years, who were either DJs or players, or one of them had a recording studio. And they discovered it's a particularly cheap drum machine synthesizer, Hmm. the TR-909. And they kind of discovered this thing around 1985 and started fooling around with it and started fooling around with it in relation because they were DJs to turntables, you know, Mm -hmm. scratching records. They They were incredibly provincial. None of them had ever moved beyond Detroit. And they also were, they played in gay clubs and straight clubs. Uh, And they are these big guys whose sexuality is really ambiguous. They don't really talk about it very much, but largely this is a gay scene. And it's in Detroit. And there's a lot of very good archival footage of them playing in clubs. And they developed this sound. 
It had also some people from Chicago were probably working on the same thing. And they mentioned Miles and they mentioned Prince, but they are laying the claim that it is a group of black Detroit musicians who, who created the techno sound. Mm-hmm. And they began to get some international attention. And so a London record, small record label wanted to record them. So at a certain point they went to London and then they just happened to be playing in Germany, in Berlin, when the wall came down. And at that point, some white German musicians got involved with the sound only they called it house. Mm. And most people confuse house and techno and they think it's one and the same. And so the story is that techno, you know, came out of Germany around the time the wall came down. And these Detroit musicians are really upset about this. And so the film is about setting the record straight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It needs a six-part series to do that. It needs a context. It's so hard to wrap your brain around the fact that these guys really hardly ever left Detroit. Oh, yeah, one of them once came to the Paradise Garage in the mid-'80s. Once. (laughs) It's great. And they are wonderful. And they're still except for one of the main ones who died before the film was finished. And also Greg Tate sets up the beginning of the story and then he disappears. And that's because he died before the film got really underway. But he would have given it a framing story, which it doesn't really have. Mm. And so it's quite rough, but just wonderful material. And I think someone should give this documentarian a lot of money and turn this into a six-part series for some streaming service. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Because I think it kind of can get lost in just talking about like dance music or club music generally. It's really fascinating to think that there was this kind of ground zero with this particular type of uh, drum machine and everything. Um, I, I want to catch up with that. I don't know why I didn't. Suddenly thought of Eden. Remember that Mia Hansen Love movie? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> they can do something like that for, for these guys. And that was God Said Give Them Drum Machines. But so those are two music documentaries. And I guess thinking about Tribeca generally, I, they, they would often be like two or three international films that, that would crop up there. Yeah. And I think there was one that I was curious about that I missed in the time frame, but you said you saw Woman on the Roof? Yeah. Polish, right? Polish. I think Woman on the Roof is probably the best fiction film. I, definitely the best fiction film I saw. I mean, there were a lot of fiction films I didn't see, but it is so tough, this film. Mm. It is like this director took Agnieszka Holland's A Woman Alone which is that film that no one will show because it's just the toughest, most depressing film you've ever seen in your life. And, you know, she has the only print of it. And at this point, she believes, Agnieszka Holland, that you have to leave people with some hope. And this film actually doesn't do that. Uh, Her film. This film has an ending that you could read in two possible ways, so it's not quite as devastating, but it's pretty devastating. And it has an absolutely fantastic performance 
by a woman named Dorota Parmacala, and she won the Best Actress Prize in the, uh, or actor, because they only did one, in the International Narrative Competition. I think I read that she had both stage experience and soap opera experience, and they both did them very well. It's about a woman in her probably 50s who works in a hospital as a midwife. And at the beginning of the film, you see her go up onto the roof of her building, and you see her to the point that she puts her feet at the edge of the roof, and you think there is no way she cannot not jump because she's so close to the edge. And then the film flashes back, and she basically, she's this incredibly retiring, extremely nice and very competent person who is just ignored or trashed by her entire family, which includes her sister. And you don't understand for a while why the inciting incident after the scene on the roof in the film is that she goes into a bank and very timidly she pulls out a kitchen knife and asks the clerk to give her money And when that doesn't work, she flees and she promptly gets arrested. Mm. And much later in the film, you find out that she's lent her sister all the money she had to use for her daughter. I think the daughter, it seems like the daughter is pregnant and needs an abortion, which is illegal and completely illegal in Poland. I think that's what it's about, although it's hard to really say for sure. But in the meantime, her entire family has turned on her. She's been arrested. She loses her job, and people are just really not nice to her when she has been, in every interaction, incredibly generous and competent and clearly supporting her fucking family who absolutely just have no use for her whatsoever now that her money is gone. Mm. And she suffers from serious depression. That's the other thing. (laughs) suffered from serious depression all her life. Well, yeah. And no wonder. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's an unbelievably tough, heartbreaking film. And so I don't know that anyone will release it, but it certainly was the best narrative I saw. Yeah. It sounds like a movie that tells like an undertold kind of story, which is someone just kind of diligently doing the good thing. (laughs) Exactly. And then, yeah, just being ground into the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's, a story that must be happening a lot. A lot. And it's almost the same film as the Agnieszka Holland film, except that was also about communism. Mm. And so what's really interesting is, so this isn't a communist country anymore, and it's exactly the same. Right. Did you get the sense from the movie that, that's kind of part of what it's doing or is that she doesn't even need to signal that? Yeah, she doesn't need to sing. I just happen to be one of the only people in the world who've seen that film many times (laughs) and written about it. Um, But um, so, you know, she's not, I would have loved to have talked to her and asked her if that's what she was doing. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope it gets out there. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm really glad that the actor won something because she's just, tremendous and it's kind of the kind of performance that usually is not noticed (laughs) Mm, yeah 
Um, and the director again is uh, Anna Yadowska. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's your strongest uh, fiction pick. Yeah. And then I was I was intrigued that there were a couple of horror or horror related or horrific <laughs> films. I guess one of them also won won one of the prizes. I think the Our Father the Devil won a bunch of prizes. Yeah, won a bunch of prizes, and then I think Wisera also won a prize. I think. Yeah. It won two prizes. Won two prizes. So, and I don't know, Our Father the Devil was in viewpoints. I mean, I don't know what their sections mean. Um, <laughs> Sarah, I think, was in the midnight section. And then there was this other film called Attachment. And in an odd way, they fit into something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that, I mean, Tribeca went out of its way to make sure that there were a lot of films by women and or about women, with a woman as the central character. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these films are, I mean, I just see more and more of them. Women are in the grip of powerful, women have no minds in these films, and they are just in the grip of conflicting good forces and bad forces, you know, and often in two of these films, it's like the good witch and the bad witch, and the woman is being pummeled between them and eventually comes out of it alive or doesn't, but they have no minds, these women. And I understand perfectly that the forces of the unconscious are working overtime in terms of the horrific actions and ideology of patriarchy. And how could women be anything except respond viscerally to any of this? But I really don't like it. I don't like these films. I don't think they are useful in any way. There was also a terrible documentary that I turned off really fast about Andrea Dworkin that did exactly the same thing. I mean, it was just, you know, glorifying Andrea Dworkin. But at the same time, she was clearly nuts, and she was. And somehow that became a great thing. Her greatness was, you know, her prose and her thought came out of this obsessive irrationality uh, that she, you know, that was a limitation. I mean, the whole Andrew Dworkin revival right now is pretty horrific um, in terms of feminism. I mean, I thought she had been successfully put to rest, but apparently not. When, when you're talking about the movies where uh, women are main characters and they're just buffeted about by these forces and they can only react or respond. Is what's missing like uh, a space for us to kind of live in their interiority? Is that that's what's missing? It's more of just like a reactive? The directors obviously think that the film is showing us somehow their interior lives. And, you know, maybe they are, but their interior lives are bereft of any kind of rational, analytic thought. And so it's the same thing of women feel. 
but you know, women have a special kind of consciousness that I just find unbearable. So we have Our Father's the Devil, a French language film set in France. The director is Ellie Fomby, F-O-U-M-B-I. And it concerns a woman who is an absolutely amazing actor, Babatida Sajo, an actor with a huge stage history, history on the French stage. And the actor in the Polish film is great, and this woman is great. Unfortunately, she doesn't have a film to be in. She doesn't have a film to take advantage of how absolutely great she is. So the first act of this film, the setup, is pretty interesting. And then, like many films, it just totally falls apart. So she is playing a woman from an African country. And I watched this film twice, or at least the second time I looked at the subtitles to make sure that they never mentioned what African country. Uh, but they don't. Why they avoid this, I don't know. I hate films that say this is. she came from an African country and she meets an African priest. Uh, and it is one of those countries that had a civil war in which there were child soldiers. Okay. And she is clearly traumatized and she is living in France and she has been adopted by a woman who was a famous French chef or the head of a restaurant who is now in a nursing home. And she has gotten, and this character, Marie, She's gotten her a job in running the kitchen at the nursing home so that she will always have her cooking for her. And Marie seems incredibly self-possessed, but something just a little bit off about her. So you think that she is really quite traumatized. And a priest comes from some African country to the nursing home, and she realizes that the priest was a child soldier who raped her and killed her whole family in front of her. It then caused her to do something which is revealed at the end. And so she goes quite crazy and she kidnaps him. She knocks him out, kidnaps him, takes him to a house in the country and tortures him for the next two acts of the movie. Repeatedly. That's pretty much the movie. She tortures him and he denies that he's the person who she thinks he is. And then she goes back to try to work in the nursing home where they're beginning to wonder where the priest is. And then she comes back and tortures him. And and that goes on and on for two acts of the movie. And there's an ending, but I won't tell you what it is. But before it ends, it has a scene that's like many movies I saw at Tribeca and many movies I'm seeing, which occurs somewhere toward the end of the second act or the beginning of the third act, where there is an extremely graphic sex scene. Now, this woman should never have sex with anyone. She is not in a state where she could possibly be having sex, but they have to get that in the movie. So there's been this very nice bartender, bar owner, who's been after her for a long time, And finally, the director decides there has to be a sex scene in the movie. And so they have this, you know, kind of wild sex scene. And it's just there. And it is so 
infuriating because it is against the character and it's clearly such a bid for you have a movie and you don't have much <laughs> a narrative going on beyond the first act and there has to be something to keep them in the theater give them sex and the same thing happens in this Mexican movie with Sarah it is a movie about a young woman who gets married and gets pregnant and it seems like she is happy this is what she's always wanted but during the pregnancy she begins to freak out and have terrible dreams and the movie becomes increasingly hallucinatory and then she has the baby and she's even more freaked out and she tries to kill the baby and somewhere in the movie her friend has said well i thought you were just like me you know but you were scared i thought you were a lesbian like me but then you ended up getting married to this guy and having a kid no wonder you are miserable <laughs> um, and that said quite rationally and you think oh yeah she has this big conflict but the way her conflict is resolved is that somehow i forget how she knows that there is a good witch doctor a woman you know a kind of woman who specializes in inducing psychedelic trances so that you meet your various in hallucinatory good guides who will take you through your insanity and have a fight with the bad person who is possessing you and <laughs> which it seems like a peculiarly movie character <laughs> like that's where i encounter that right but in this one also at the beginning of the third act when she's going through this there's a big sex scene where this lesbian character and this tormented woman who's married they have a big sex scene together um and then at the end this resolves a problem and she goes home and packs her suitcase and hands the baby to her husband and leaves <laughs> so the problem was repression yes her repressed lesbian desire i mean i guess you could call if she had gone into psychotherapy and they would have said listen the obvious thing is you want this woman you don't want to be married to this guy go and do what you want but and you could say that the psychoanalysts or witch doctors but it's played out with these horror movie tropes and then of course what bothers me is that these sex scenes which are just so awful i mean those kinds of really big two bodies writhing on the bed sex scenes there are so after you have this actor who's been given a reasonably good performance suddenly she has to do this you know. performative yeah yeah and there's another one just like, like this as well which is called attachment all right uh an attachment is about a woman who comes from this uh ultra orthodox community in Norway who meets an english woman and they fall in love and then it is discovered that the woman from norway is possessed of a divok mm. and has epileptic seizures and but they all have sex scenes as well. <laughs> and in the end she gets she gets freed of her divok by her mother 
who you thought was a bad person all along, suddenly sacrificing herself and walking into the magic Kabbalah circle or something. So the divot comes <laughs> out of her daughter and into the mother and the mother dies and the daughter can go off with her lesbian girlfriend. Um, wow, okay. I just have problems with these movies. I have problems with, you know, the idea that women are possessed. And when you have central women characters, I even prefer the intelligent last girl in horror movies. Because mm -hmm. the intelligent last girl always has a plan and has a mind. And these women are at you know, there are warring forces inside them. And it's not, they are not working this out on their own. They have people helping them, mothers who sacrifice them, or witch doctors who mm -hmm. get rid of the bad people and let the good people come in. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a problem. It's, it's sort of like watching just kind of an equation playing out. Yes. And while I'm on this, this is not really similar because it's so incoherent and so boring and so not a movie. But there was a movie by Shirin Nesha, who is the Iranian artist. And the feature film, all I can say about it is it's like warded down David Lynch with really clunky explanations of what's going on here. Wait, what's the title of this one? Land of Dreams, Sharon Nashat. Okay, yeah, I uh, know. I didn't. I didn't watch that. I thought she made a feature film before. I think she has, and I think I avoided it. Yeah, I've always been a little puzzled by uh, her feature films that that then get even like you know placed in like Venice Film Festival or other festivals. And but when I watch them, I've I've watched like a couple before and they've just been really pretty inert yeah that's what this one was it was really inert it was also incoherent but yeah uh, but i guess it stars the actress from uh, a girl walks home alone at night yes so for what that's worth <laughs> uh, and she, and you know she carries off really this bogus stupidity very well. <laughs> I think that's the best I can say about it. All right. Well, so no no voyages to the land of dreams, also pretty lazy title, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I was just thinking of a movie that we both saw, which is ex experimental, I would have to say. Mm -hmm. And it's called There, There. Andrew Budowski. Latest Andrew Budowski movie. Yeah, I went, that's the only thing I went to live because I was interested in seeing Andrew and I knew he, you know, talk about whatever he had made. And so I went to the live one. So what did you think of that? Well. Or we should, we should explain the premise, I guess. You explain the premise. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's basically a series of interlocking dialogues. So, you know, two characters talk and then you know, the next one has one of those characters or someone related to one of those characters and it continues that way for the movie and then, you know, kind of comes full circle without giving more away. Um, so, you know, you have, a, it starts with two people with the night after their, you know, one night stand, but it is not a one night stand. So they're talking after the, the morning after and then goes 
Oh, to a hilarious scene. The second yeah. scene is so with, funny. Yeah, with, uh, with I guess, her AA... Sponsor, yes. Sponsor. So that's the structure of it. But what you what you don't necessarily know or you can figure out um, is it's shot in, I guess you could say, like the high classical pandemic style. <laughs> Which, <laughs> <laughs> just because he sticks to it, you know, as if it's now as yeah. if it's a style. So it's kind of... Um, and that is that each person, uh, each actor in these dialogues was shot separately. So their scenes, um, you know, it, it's just that person. And then it's cut together to resemble uh, a scene that had both of them in the same room. Um, Although you never have a two shot exactly. in the entire film. Yeah. I mean, I just got so hungry for a two shot. I knew what was going on by the third shot mm -hmm. because you see Lily Taylor and then you see, oh, I've forgotten his name, but he's such a good actor, her partner in this scene. Yeah. And the other thing about this movie that's really good is that almost everyone is middle-aged. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like Andrew's casts are aging with him. Mm -hmm. And I just found that really interesting. Yeah. So I knew immediately that they were shooting them separately in separate spaces. But what I didn't realize was how separate the spaces were so that people who were in the same scene might be actually have been shot in two different countries and one partner might have been shot in August and the partner in the scene might have been shot in January. So it is an editing tour de force. I mean, it's totally crazy. Yeah. And Andrew was on Zoom directing one actor at a time and the dp was also on zoom and had chosen camera operators in each of these different places and this had all been worked out on paper you know so that it would look in some way like it was matching but of course it doesn't and basically it's very little camera movement yeah. but the oddest thing is that they have a ghost cast and the ghost cast feeds the person in the scene is fed the lines of the person who would have been the partner in the scene but isn't there by someone who isn't seen on camera so that they can react. And the thing is that this editor was absolutely brilliant because you do believe that they are reacting to something that someone else has said. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard enough to cut that way. That's the hardest thing about cutting narrative, really, especially if you're not using two simultaneous cameras. But to cut from talking head to the person who's listening to the other talking head, mm -hmm. I mean, that's really hard. Yeah. Uh, and you are always facing these actors who have different techniques and some of them are great on the first take and some of them don't get into it till the sixth take. And that's what drives editors nuts. So I have no idea. I think it's Andrew who edited the film and it's just brilliant, except it is, you know, it is a stunt. <laughs> and I don't know if the first half, except for Lily Taylor's partner in that first scene, who is a man, the first three scenes are women. And I just think Andrew writes better for women than for men. 
Mm-hmm. And as soon as the scenes start becoming largely man on man, or the scenes belong to the man, I just found the whole thing totally boring. That's interesting. Yeah. And the actor who's opposite Lily Taylor in that first scene is uh, Lenny James. Yeah, he's he's really good. The, the one thing, I mean, just quickly, the one thing I didn't understand about the ghost cast, mm-hmm. that wasn't a person who was in the same room either, was it? I believe they're off camera. They're, they're off camera, but they are in the same room. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Because that's the thing I don't understand then, because that makes it even more of an artifice if you do have someone who's in the same room as the other actor, but you're still filming them as if, you know, you could have the other actor in the same room. Do you know what I mean? It just means that, like, the reason they don't have Lily Taylor in the room with Lenny James isn't because of COVID necessarily, because you do have this ghost cast member who is in the room. Yeah, but the ghost person could be wearing a mask. Or, is he always, is he you know, just could be in a hazmat suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, could be at the other side of the room. Okay. Yeah. All they have to do is deliver a line which isn't recorded. Right. But <laughs> which is wiped out so that Lily Taylor can react to that line on camera. Yeah. One of the ghost cast members was at the Q&A. I don't know if it was the same for you um, at the screening and... She, I mean, she was very happy to have done it and just, you know, but it was amazing because it basically means giving a performance or I guess maybe several performances that do not appear on the screen. It's kind of remarkable. Exactly. And, and all that you get for it is your name in the credits as ghosts. And no one knows what that means <laughs> till it's explained to you. Right, right. Which is especially confusing because there is a ghost in one of those stories, isn't there? I think um, one of the dialogues. Um, oh, Yeah. That's what happens with the Jason Schwartzman uh, yeah. dialogue. I found it really fascinating watching how actors responded to this uh, constraint. And I don't know, this is this is a Lily Taylor performance I've enjoyed more than a, a, a lot of other ones I've seen somehow. I almost thought that somehow something about this constraint like energized her. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I, I, I don't know. I really like. I thought I thought she was wonderful. Yeah. But I do think she's wonderful a lot. Yeah. And I. I think it's the first performance where she's actually playing what her real age is now rather than trying to do things that she did when she was younger. Ah, okay. I think that was what was really wonderful about it. I also think the woman who plays her sponsor is one of the most wonderful comic actors I've seen. I mean, she is amazing. So Lily Taylor goes from having this maybe one night stand or maybe whatever to have coffee with her 12 step sponsor. And the sponsor is really a lunatic. And the whole scene is Lily Taylor talking about what a lunatic her former sponsor was. And you realize that her current sponsor is also a lunatic. Yeah. And then the sponsor goes to then harass, in the worst possible way, this very young teacher for, I forget what the teacher is being called on the carpet for by this sponsor who's really crazy. Those scenes are just wonderful. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that actress, uh, Annie, Annie Laganga, Annie Laganga, I guess is her name. Yeah. Um, she, I mean, it might be wrong, but I, in, in her scene with Lily Taylor, I just feel like she's just giving a look when they cut to her sometimes, <laughs> you know, she, yeah, she has a great comic presence. Um, but then it turns around and she turns in this really like kind of 
almost macabre kind of twisted side to the character when she's talking to um, Molly Gordon playing, uh, yeah, like a, I, forget, I guess it's a high school teacher or something like this. The woman's son is, is doing some like internet sex thing in class or something like that. Um, and the fact that the teacher did not stop it or know about it or something is, is right. I think that's he's, he's using his phone in a bad way in classes. Yeah. Is what's going on. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. And then that kind of just spirals. Um, that that's a scene where something about the constriction of the form ends up feeling like really um, suffocating. Um, I mean, in an interesting way, because you're just like, you want them to be separated, like actually separated, because the scene is so hard uh, to watch, you know, watch her treat this teacher that way. And there are a couple of points where it's kind of creative what they're doing, like in that first scene between Willie Taylor and Lenny James, when they're both on the bed, you know, mm-hmm. and they're cutting between them lying down, gazing into the camera. I mean, that that was kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, it gets a little dicier. And and yeah, maybe this is related to what you were saying about uh, his writing for uh, male characters with the Jason Schwartzman where, yeah, it just didn't click for me. Yeah. That was a case where like, I felt like maybe he's a person who needs other people in the room to uh-huh. to play off of. And so it didn't, re- didn't really work as well. He just seems to kind of fizzle out a little bit. I don't know. Right. Oh, and then there was one other thing just to mention about the movie that's also like a little formal gambit. Um, but each of these scenes, they're, they're interspersed by very short kind of musical interludes by this uh, same uh, musician. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that. That kind of wore on me. I wanted to like it, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what would be neat if, if somehow they could do that where that was live? Maybe that would work in an interesting way. <laughs> like they, would, they would play a dialogue scene and then they would, someone live would be doing that and then they go back. There I go eventizing another movie, but what can I do? Yeah. So that's There There, uh, Andrew Wojcicki. And one movie I saw that I just wanted to mention, uh, the documentary uh, with, with an absolutely unsearchable title. Uh, and that title is Subject. Oh. The, the premise is sort of deceptively simple. It's basically, what if we talk to people who were in ethically thorny documentaries of one sort or another? And I just really found the interviews that they, they have with past subjects to be really interesting. I, I don't know if the whole documentary held together exactly, partly because you have such a range of you know people coming through and, and each of these people were like the strong focus of one film. So maybe somehow having them all in, in the same feature was, was tough. But what they do is they have people from The Staircase, one of the daughters from The Staircase, and I think also the father. Um, they have one of the uh, one of the high school, obviously now, you know, adult folks from Hoop Dreams. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That was a really interesting one because, you know, one of the questions is, do you compensate subjects or how do you compensate subjects? Um, you know, you parachute into their lives and then, the, you know, so you're kind of expecting it to turn out to be like, oh, he's, you know, this, this particular subject is, has been struggling, but it turns out they did cut him in on some form of the profits. And I wrote the figure uh-huh. down. I, yeah. I wrote the figure down somewhere and it was like, <laughs> it was like a hefty amount. Um, and he was, and he's on camera saying this was life-changing. This is great. So that was really interesting to me because I, I always thought that, you know, if not that movie, but, uh, you know, uh, other, other movies, that, that it is kind of what happens is that you you catch people at hard points in their lives and the movie is not going to turn that around for them necessarily. And also it's it's not necessarily documentary practice that you'll be compensating them 
with the actual proceeds of the movie, you might compensate them in some, some other way or for their time or the space, or if you're using electricity in a house or something like that. But in this case, I guess they really did. So um, they, and, they, and which player was that? Um, Arthur Agee. Yeah, he's, he, he's really lovely. I mean, that guy. So he got money. Tens of thousands or maybe even over $100,000 to the province. So, yeah, it's a significant amount. And yeah, they also have the son, grown son from capturing the Freedmans, uh, who is just as unsettl- unsettling as he you know, as he ever was. And they they kind of have a new drama with him because he falls in love, gets together with a woman who's sympathetic to him. Uh, and then that develops in its own way. Yeah, it's a movie that kind of, I think the, the interviews really are what give enough space for them to just kind of take over in, wow. in that way. That's um, good. Because otherwise in between like the interviews they're showing, it's just, there's just all these montages of other documentaries that I didn't really understand what purpose they were serving and kind of general comments. So it's it's just better when the people themselves are just kind of reflecting on the, the issues they've had or or haven't had or how they've grown or, or, or whatnot. I guess what it was is like, I kind of went into it worrying, is this just going to kind of be like five to six DVD extras put together in a way, you know, like, uh-huh. you know, where are they now? But it, it's, it's more than that. Um, so I was actually sort of surprised I didn't hear more about the movie. And that might be because when you start it, it has this, it almost has like a beginning that feels like what does a documentary kind of feel for about like a couple of a couple of minutes so if anyone like turned it on for that maybe that's better what it was right. and then uh, i guess there was one more documentary that we both saw but we're kind of nothing special oh sophia sophia um, which is worth mentioning because that's co-directed by crystal moselle who actually mm-hmm. appears in subject um but i guess the big thing i forgot to mention about subject is they make a point of on purpose only talking to the subjects and the directors don't are, are not there to give their opinions and it's a decision that they made which is an interesting one uh-huh. but crystal bazel does appear in it and she really doesn't say anything there's just like a walk and talk but she doesn't talk uh she walks and talks with one of the wolf pack um, guys uh-huh. she looks kind of looks like she might want to say something but she, <laughs> but anyway <laughs> well maybe he didn't want to do it without her yeah maybe that, that's true yeah but yeah, she co-directed Sophia, which is about an AI scientist slash entrepreneur, and he's designed or is designing or has been in the process of designing Sophia, which I think the problem, one of the problems both of us had is that we couldn't figure out what was supposed to be special or advanced about Sophia. Like what is, what is distinctive about this particular? Right. I mean, she kind of... She's very unappealing looking. I mean, she looks like a bad version of a blow-up dog. <laughs> She's the blow-up dog that you would no one would ever want to have sex with. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a movie that steers, in, I guess, into his into the personality of this guy, David Hansen, who is a, I mean, in a way, kind of like the classic kind of rumpled inventor type who is not so great with people, but is constantly having to have these meetings where he's supposed to be selling his, his um, and is just constantly, I don't know. It's always tough to watch how, uh, you know, he always looks like he's on the verge of like having a tantrum or something, mm-hmm. but that's interesting only to an extent. And, and it felt to me like it could be just kind of resembled movies about startups that I've seen a number of already. And, but there's something about his affect and, and the way 
the movie dwells on the android that kind of makes you think about what makes for a persuasive uh, personality or what makes for yeah persuasive affect in a way that was one thing i kind of thought about while watching the guy and sophia <laughs> right and this his company is in hong kong right yeah he so he's an expat there with with his wife and he has a, his mother is not there i'm not sure his mother is there or he's in contact with her and she's ill i couldn't figure it out yeah but it's interesting because her mother i guess think her mother is there because at one point she's helping with designing the molds um Uh so that was it was kind of interesting to see that 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 also that that could even happen that they haven't tried to bring someone in but you do see that happen where there's like a corporatizing of his company where they pick someone else to try to run it it's weird. Like it's a movie that you expect might be kind of triumphalist about AI, but really it shows it as in a struggling. It portrays it as struggling because he's struggling and he can't quite convince the investors. Um, which, yeah, and yeah. you can't quite figure out why anyone would want to have such an object. <laughs> yeah. Even though there is a lot of interest in having a robot servant or a robot. I mean, what does she exactly, is she capable of doing, Sophia? It's unclear. It's not like she's a three-dimensional walking, talking version of Amazon Siri. It's not like she's that at all. Yeah. She's so limited in the amount of, I mean, she basically can't do anything. Yeah. I mean, toward the end, they have her, they show her, walking or move ambulating in some way i didn't get it also i just kind of felt like i've seen a number of documentaries about ai that were already kind of far along so i don't really know mm-hmm. what is supposed to be happening with this one so yeah i i almost found it a little annoying that they're <laughs> i don't know i'm pretty comfortable thinking about ai as a fairly like ominous development uh just because mm-hmm. it's so clearly will have huge effects that no one is preparing for in any significant way or preparing people for or preparing industries. or. But here it, it ends up being like the underdog <laughs> through him. Yeah. And the office looks like, you know, when you used to walk into something like in the garment district <laughs> and you'd go up three flights of stairs and there would be this little place with cutting tables yeah. and a model coming out of the right. back room and it was, that's what it looks like. Yeah. So what kind of company is this? I mean, I mean, I never thought there were millions of dollars involved, I thought. <laughs> and he keeps calling his investor on the phone, basically asking for another $20,000. So. <laughs> yeah. This is a strange chronicle, a strange record of something. I don't mm-hmm. know what exactly, which maybe in a way is, is interesting, seeing the kind of also ran. It's not the successful story necessarily. I mean, it is the opposite story. What was that feature film after? After Yang. After Yang. Yeah. Yeah, it's the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Because you can see how someone would have gotten attached to Yang. Mm-hmm. No, Sophia, I mean. When they take her apart and put her in a suitcase, <laughs> I didn't care. <laughs> right. It, yeah, the, the poignance, poignancy of the moment was lost on me <laughs> at that point. Because, I don't know, her main abilities seem to be to be uh, inscrutable, unpredictable, like bulky and uh, but quippy that she likes. Yes. For some reason they were able to program, which only made it less persuasive as well, because I thought, well, anyone can program it to like have some comeback for like a general conversation starter. So, but yeah, that was, that was Sophia. 
but I do think that Crystal is a really interesting filmmaker. And yes, you know, I'm very curious about anything she does. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think there were a couple of other documentaries that you can mention too. I, that were political issues, I guess, for lack of a better umbrella term. Oh, yeah. I like the film that's called Rebellion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is a very, I mean, the filmmaker is, filmmakers, British. And I think it might, it was shown on Netflix in Britain. And the filmmaker stayed with this, with the organization called Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. It's from their beginnings and their incredible rise to their really disastrous coming apart. And I was sure at the end of this movie that, oh my God, they don't exist anymore, but indeed they do. And so it was a very, very interesting um, look at what happens a lot in radical political organizations um, that are started by roughly three people Mm -hmm. and at a certain moment they begin to have totally different ideas about the strategies and directions they should use next after they've had some remarkable success. I mean, if people don't know about Extinction Rebellion, I didn't actually for a long time and then Jim Jarmusch told me about them and I've been following them ever since. They are a radical environmental group that believes that we are in the middle of a climate environmental emergency. And they were able to, using peaceful resistance, nonviolent uh, resistance, shut down the city of London hmm. more than once. And they got the British Parliament to declare a climate emergency. And at a certain point, they started working with this amazing woman lawyer who had been doing climate stuff at the UN, and they brought her in. And she's by far the most interesting person in this kind of group of four people. And before the end, she leaves them. And that's when I thought they kind of fell apart because they began to arguing about whether they should do basically a sit-in or die-in at the London airport. And one of them wanted to, one of them didn't. And at that point, I just thought, I've got to stop giving money to this group because Hmm. I would, you know, I would give them $10 a month because I thought they were really getting something done. But they seemed to be existing just fine and had a big event in London. But now it was around the fact that After they got Parliament to say we are living in a climate emergency, Parliament passed these laws about demonstrations that challenge the possibility of doing any kind of peaceful resistance Mm. where you just tie up the center of London and no traffic can move for a day. Uh, And that's been outlawed. So the actual result of this was that, yeah, Parliament said, oh, yeah, it's an emergency. And then they passed laws to prevent them from doing it. Oh, wow. And so it is very, very interesting, yeah. this documentary. And it's, I don't know how the filmmaker did it, but she, you know, got in close to the process and the meetings and the organizing. It's very good. 
and it was only available online. And I don't know if you know that has to do with rights because Netflix owns it in Britain and several territories, but not in the U.S. Mm. and wouldn't let them show it anywhere except streaming, or maybe they thought no one would be interested, but it was one of the best things I saw. I also loved another documentary, but that's just a very straightforward documentary about the New York Liberty, about the women's NBA. Oh, yeah. And it was the losing season in 2021. Really, really well-made documentary that's very straightforward. And if you really like women's basketball, you will love this documentary. It's kind of like the documentary corollary to love and basketball. Oh, wow. Okay. Unfinished business. Yeah. And it's Alison Clayman is the director. That's a lot of Tribeca titles. Yeah. I mean, I do have the feeling that I missed more possibly interesting films than I saw. But I feel like that at a lot of festivals. Yeah. And there were very few reviews during the festival. There was no one kind of directing you, oh, you've got to see this. There was absolutely no buzz around anything. Yeah. It was strange. Yeah, it, it really it was on. I guess that's, that's Tribeca for, for this year. I just remembered that there were a couple other things that you did mention, not Tribeca, but other stuff. I did watch that like extended TV version of Pola X. Oh yeah, did you? Yeah, I watched the whole. What did What did you make of it? Well, I, I first have to say that I really don't have like a vivid memory of the theatrical version of Pola X. I did watch it. I've liked other movies by him more, um, so I don't have mm-hmm. like an exact accounting of what's new or what's was left out and is in this. But I was surprised by how it did flow. Like it's it's a two hour forty five minute. It's technically in three parts, but because it's been posted on YouTube in one large video that's continuous, it didn't really feel like a series in any way. It felt pretty continuous to me. It does open each chapter with this same intro bumper of the the main character just sitting and writing Mm -hmm. uh, with a voiceover that I don't think is his voice. I almost wonder if it's Carrick's voice. I I couldn't really tell. I guess people know what Paul X is about. I mean, it's, it's a kind of kind of adaptation of uh, Melville's Pierre or the Ambiguities. Mm-hmm. Which is where the title comes from. It's the letters of, first letters of the Melville title, Pierre or. Yeah, in French, it's, yeah, so it work, works out. Um, and the, yeah, the main character is a, you know, writer from a wealthy French family who has published one novel anonymously and, you know, might be working on another and is about to be married to, I guess, his cousin. Mm-hmm. Catherine Deneuve plays the kind of matriarch who is trying to make sure that this marriage happens. Guillaume Depardieu plays the writer. But then what happens is he is visited, more like, like a visitation, like part dream, part reality. And, and ultimately his, his new reality is a woman who appears and says that she's his long lost sister through their father, who was an international diplomat. And she speaks like broken French. She's from points east <laughs> in Europe. Um, and she's played by uh, Katerina Golubeva. She plays this kind of like almost like adult urchin. And and he basically just disappears like a, a day or two or a week before the, the, the wedding or the marriage. He, he just disappears into this and runs away with her. That goes about as well as you can imagine <laughs> it goes. But it's this, it's this kind of very like high romantic 
burning the candle at both ends vision of love and creation. And it has one incredible sex scene. I mean, I've been trashing all these movies with sex scenes, but this truly has one incredible sex scene. Yeah. I have a giant poster on my wall from the original release of Paula X, which I, it's just a quote about the sex scene. <laughs> um, and so, and because the poster is so beautiful and there is my quote about the sex scene. And since I had no memory of what I had written anywhere and couldn't find it online, it's some year of the village voice that they didn't post anything yet mm. online. Mm -hmm. I had no way of knowing for a while what I thought of this film till I found kind of my saying, well, it, it has great stuff, but it's incoherent. This is the original. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of thought that I had very positive memories and that this was even better. But I do think this long version is really powerful. But it may just be that I am in the mood for these excessive romantic movies when they aren't horror movies. I don't mind that they're about death, but, you know, they're not horror movies. Right. And I can't quite wrap my head around that, but it was coming on upon this on YouTube and seeing a film that was not afraid to be excessive in that way. Yeah. And, and yet it is quite, even on YouTube, you can tell that it is quite gorgeous. Yeah. And then I love that kind of, I always loved, I thought the whole movie should have been set in that crazy place <laughs> with that Glenn Branca-like orchestra. And I thought that orchestra should have played the entire, through the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, that's the incredible sequence. Yeah, that, the whole part of the movie, they, at one point they, They've kind of fled to live in, I don't know what it is. It's, it's like, it seems to be this, I can't say it's a commune because it pretty clearly just seems to be run by this conductor figure who is constantly making, it's orchestrating. You know, there's a little like orchestral pit, but it's all in what looks mm -hmm. like a former factory that still seems to have turbines yep. as well there. So I didn't quite understand that. Um, and also there's like a, a militia aspect to, to the organization mm -hmm. as well. They show them like mm -hmm. doing target practice on mannequins and, yeah, that part's just incredible, and, and they live in some some room off off there. So there's this constant din of the music going on. Have you read it? I haven't read it. I mean, I have it here sitting in front of me, but it's one that I've never made a lot of progress in. I mean, I love a lot of mm -hmm. Melville, but I'm not always able to always able to finish them. I read it years ago. Yeah, I'm. I had read it in college, and then. When I saw the film originally, I leafed through it again, and now I've totally forgotten it. Yeah. But I prefer to Moby Dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it is, obviously, this is a YouTube, so it doesn't look great, but, but it, it's beautiful. He has a way of shooting at night or whatever he's doing to simulate night that is just really incredible. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds you of the difference in his movies between all the first movies that was shot on film mm -hmm. and the recent films that are shot digitally, which yeah. I just think don't have that kind of sensuous, eroticized feel yeah. of the movies he made that were on celluloid with that great cinematographer. Yeah. It's, what's his name? Gautier, right? Or... Yeah. It's especially pronounced in this one because 
it starts out in this really idyllic, you know, pastoral setting of, of this chateau where this guy lives. And all of that, I mean, they look like they're nymphs, you know, him, him and his, his wife. And then they, yeah, they run into Ms. Goldeva, who also has a couple of people with her, but she's also helping take care of. And that's its own little tragic arc. And she's, you know, she's the mother of their Nacha, who is in the latest movie. I mean, just standing next to her father. And, you know, it's tragic because they're both dead. Yeah. Yeah. Watching it, it's, I kept on kind of actually thinking what, not like what represents what, but it, it adds another layer to it. In the same way it does with the new one in a way. Annette. Mm-hmm. This, I also tried to wonder then if what the orchestra, what that whole aspect was. It, I mean, it seemed to be symbolizing something about like, I don't know if that was like a movie set or something, you know, or. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what the date of this movie is, but I do remember going to Berlin. Actually, this figures into the documentary about the Detroit techno band. I remember being in Berlin in 89, 90, and 91 when the wall came down and that clubs were being made in these places in what had been East Berlin that were like abandoned banks with Mm. huge vaults in the basement. And you would go to these clubs and the sound level was unbelievable. And mostly it was, it was metal music. It wasn't techno music. It was metal. And in these cavernous like spaces with all this reverb because they were vaults. Right. And I always thought that kind of was the inspiration for that space. But the music also always sounded to me like Glenn Branca, like one of his pieces for a hundred simultaneous guitars. <laughs> and, you know, I like that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they seem to be producing it 24-7 at this, uh, this place. Um, yeah. There's also like a pack of dogs that guards the entrance to it. I also don't know, I think I already said, but I don't know how much is different between this and the original Pola X. Did you have a sense of... It's a half hour more, and I think it probably... There were things in the original, which I can't remember, but at the time thinking, well, that's an incoherent cut. Hmm. You know, where have we gone now? And I saw it a couple of times because I was of multiple minds about it, I guess. I think that this... This long version is coherent Mm -hmm. in a way that the first version wasn't. Yeah. I think it really moves as well. I don't even know, fully understand how, like, because it's so, in some ways it's so like involuted. It's so in his head and, and she keeps acting as if she's like an urchin, you know, keeps on. Right. um, And, and that persists, you know, and likewise his fiance, she also, tags along at a certain point and it's also pretty pretty helpless and so it doesn't there just seems to be this idea of like this just vortex of love or whatever it is that just everyone gets sucked in yeah you know and everyone just loses actually it flashed into my head the clarity movie the both sides of the blade i don't know um, if you've talked about Mm -hmm. that yet but just that same sense of just like your life being just completely just whooshed away (laughs) But the difference, you know, both sides of the blade, which for me has a lot of problems, mostly it's digital shooting, Mm. because, you know, Claire Denis, her films are great 
because they are so tactile. And mm. this opens with a scene of these two characters supposedly having, you know, wild sex in the water or something. And it's just so patently a digital scan. <laughs> I mean, has, there's no there's no tactility at all. Classy. But they're pretending there is. Yeah. But anyway, that film is, for me, these people should know better. Now, maybe that's idealistic of me, like, at a certain point, you realize how stupid you were when you were <laughs> 20, 30, and even 40. But they're 60, and they still haven't figured it out. And I just got really irritated. <laughs> so this is like being able to go back to being 20 and crazy in that way, or 30 and crazy in that way. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, the romanticism of it was right yeah. for these characters. Yeah, there's there's more than one crazy run in the street, which is I always appreciated a character's movie. You know, just yeah. I mean, there's just one absolutely epic one. He he crashes that van and then he just run. I don't. Know, it's just that it, it's yeah. It's like being in a chase, but no one else knows that you're in a chase. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, he's playing such a like well mannered character, so and but it's just completely deteriorating. I mean, that kind of was also interesting. Um, and I guess he, I guess he died as well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, who knows what will happen with it? I mean, that's part of the almost Caraxian mystery of it that in, in this YouTube thing, someone's put a like text page that says like, you know, this is from a VHS, but we, or we don't know how or where. And someone then subtitled it just to put it on YouTube. Those are, yeah, it, it didn't come with those subtitles. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, I think Criterion should get hold of it and put it out. Yeah, I mean, it is not a perfect movie, but God, no one is making movies like that anymore. No, that's entirely true. Yeah, it'd be for, it's yeah, virtually impossible for that movie mm -hmm. to exist now. It's it's really an odd one. It's kind of like. There are obviously that crazy place is like something out of Weekend as well. Mm. And it's kind of like a Godard movie, but with all the stuff that Godard is simply too repressed to put in his movies. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, the fluid movement between the his dream sequence, his dreams. I mean, one thing I always admire about characters is just showing me something I didn't even know, like there was a new way of doing something, you know? Right. And and he does that with, there's one dream sequence where he dreams that he's in like a river of blood, basically. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that's shot. I, I really don't because you're, you're, you're tilted over the edge of like a water, a river of blood over a waterfall. And you see two of, you see the couple bathing in it and it's just like a few seconds and yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. So, and those are very, I almost thought those, I mean, is it's too easy, but those were almost Lynchian the way those kind of rush, you rush in and out of those. Mm -hmm. um, it had, had that kind of quality to them. And I couldn't help but thinking of like Lost Highway coming out like mm -hmm. just a year or two before this. But yeah, that those sequences are pretty great. Well, maybe we'll, maybe it'll emerge someday. Who knows? But um, uh, I know you also mentioned the artist space thing. Well, yeah, I, I would say a quick word about there is this very interesting show at Artist Space that 
Um, I'm supposed to be writing that right at this very <laughs> It's called Attention Line, and it's basically it's a show that you you might call them outsider artists. Very different one from the other, and there are like uh, eleven of them, and there are people who made the kind of art that hangs on the wall, but also made videos and live performance, and of course some of them are still making them. Mm -hmm. So the guy who's totally involved with film is Craig Baldwin, and there's this amazing West Coast black artist who I had never heard of, and actually some black artists I know had never heard of him either. His name is Ed Berrio, and he has some really amazing visual pieces that are sculptural and, you know, things that hang on the wall. But he also made some amazing videos, political videos, and one of the most amazing fake game shows <laughs> that I've ever seen with an entirely black cast in whiteface. And it is so underplayed. It's like better than no one on Saturday Night Live can sustain that kind of underplaying mm -hmm. of satire. And he is the central character and he is just a great performer. So that's interesting. And of course, the person who I'm really interested in is Manuel Zelanda, mm. uh, who is <laughs> a really complicated bio he has because he began as a graphic designer and then he came to New York from Mexico and went to the School of Visual Arts where he made, where I met him, and he made Super 8 and 16 millimeter films at the same time that he was doing this extremely in-your-face transgressive graffiti outside. Uh, and then he would film some of this stuff. And so in the gallery, there are two pieces. One is called Ismism, and the other is called Harmful or Fatal if Swallowed. Mm -hmm. And they are quite stunning, but he's having two evenings, one on July 2nd where he's showing both his early Super 8 films, and then he stopped making films and became a philosopher and has published many very serious books, oh. philosophical books about you know, the origin of viruses. And, huh. you know, he taught at Princeton and he still teaches at Columbia in the School of Architecture. And so he is also going to do sometime in, in July a lecture. And Manuel's lectures are, I do not know how to describe them. Mm. I really don't. I have a great deal of difficulty reading his books, but, you know, he's very much for a long time in the Deleuzian model, mm -hmm. and now not so much anymore. But his lectures are fantastic, and if you just Google Manuel de Landa, you can find his Vimeo site where a lot of the stuff, including the lectures, are available. Yeah. But seeing him live and in person is really something. I will never forget when he wrote this book about military machines and lectured at the Pentagon. Oh, wow. I mean, this just, you know, mad scientist, <laughs> <laughs> graphic designer guy. Yeah. <laughs> he is truly like no one else. And 
he stopped really making moving image work between the early 80s and quite recently. And then he came back in the past 10 years and began to work digitally. Hmm. And I haven't made up my mind about the digital pieces because I think it's kind of like another version of the Claire Denis. All right. Tactility and the how visceral the film pieces were. I'm not sure that digitally they translate. Okay. But he's great, and he's nearly unknown in, the, in a way that's calculated. I mean, he's just lived in secret in New York for 46 years, and after the show, he's going back to Mexico to live for the rest of his life. Really? Wow. Yeah. So last chance is to see Manuela de Landa present films and lecture live. Wow. I saw some of his older films. I think Anthology showed a bunch of them. Like, Yeah. They restored and archived most of the early Super 8 and 16. Yeah, which I loved. I mean, those were... <laughs> I'd like the Pentagon one. I would love to see if there is a... Is there a visual record of that or is it just... I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. But if you go to the show, the Ed Burial game show piece is showing on a monitor in his room. Okay. And it is really great. Okay. So that's uh, our artist space. Well, we can finish with that. Um, but now, yeah, I'll, I'll stop taking you away from, from the writing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, people should look out, uh, listeners should look out for an art form piece on, on Tribeca. Um, and then you mentioned you're also writing uh, about the artist space. I'm going to write just those kind of 400 word pieces about Delanda for that first evening of films on uh, Screen Slate. On Screen Slate, great. So the Delanda, there's War in the Age of Intelligent Machines, published by Zone. That's the thing that went to the Pentagon. And the most recent one is Materialist Phenomenology, a Philosophy of Perception. That's his most recent book. And that's a very useful book in terms of movies. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's his only book that has a direct relationship, you could say, to movies all right well thank you amy and we'll soon again we'll, we'll get you on here until we speak again have a really good summer and maybe i'll see you at artist space at one yes of these shows. yes it's, it seems like quite likely you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas rapold please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com special thanks to the minarets for the opening music thank you for listening Thank you.